0: Welcome to machine learning by Spark. So what it does is, you for categorical data, you you set up your indexer, your string indexer, and uh, and then you build uh, you build a fact table, and uh, then you, in your vector you'll list your your features that are numeric, and your categorical data are your fact tables, and they get listed as uh, parameters. And uh, then your pipeline, you fit that against your train data, and then you transform it against your test data. So uh, uh, that, that, that then puts everything in numeric form. And uh, that's what you—that's what you want—is everything to be numerical, so uh, that you can met, then make your predictions. Now you could also take text data and vectorize it, uh, tokenize it. So uh, tokeni- tokenizing is basically converting the text to a uh, data dictionary index. So you have a dictionary and then you have an ID or an index number that is stored and uh, the uh, classifier, let's say you're dealing with a random forest classifier. It's going to uh, use the index numbers to train on. So everything now is numerical. so so vectorizing you can do uh, table document inverse document and it then um, is added to uh, your feature your vector in your feature list so the results of that are again a, a table that's added and so all all that information then becomes features, and it, all the features are numeric, and uh, and uh, therefore um, you can uh, uh, get uh, a predictable result. Then you can you can feed that in uh, to the accuracy, and then you can see what your accuracy is. Um, so you can do recall, precision. And accuracy and uh, so accuracy is your true positive plus your true negative di- <laughs> divided by true positive, true negative, false negative, and false positive, so the, and that'll give you accuracy, and then recall is uh, how much of. Um, the patterns. How many of the patterns is it, it actually recalling correctly? And so um, each one has a formula, and you can you can extract that. You can extract the uh, true positive, true negative, false negative, false positive from the uh, prediction. So you run your prediction, and it has a label. A prediction and then you can uh, in PySpark you can write a filter uh, where you're comparing the prediction to the label uh, to determine whether or not it is uh, a false positive false negative so you'd look at the label you can say well with well, the labels either zero or one and then uh, look to see if the prediction is equal to the label or the prediction is not equal to the label and they give you and that gives you your four combinations and uh, from that then you get your confusion matrix and you can also get these metrics for accuracy precision and recall I think early on they, they did say that that's what they were going to focus on I mean there's other equations that you can use like f2 score F1 score, and uh and they have more to do with hypothesis testing and p-values uh, but in this case here where we were just dealing with like say a logistic regression classifier or a random force classifier you'd probably just want to stay uh with the the, the big three which is precision recall and accuracy and uh And so they get into this discussion also about uh, area under the curve. So what you're looking at area under a curve is true positive versus false positives. So true positive going vertical, false positive going negative, or along the horizontal axis, -axis. x-axis. So you have y-axis, x-axis. And, uh, and, uh, then those, uh, Uh, So, then you want to have a curve that you want to have a large area curve approaching one. So, you can calculate the area under the curve, um, or the PySpark has, uh, I think, some APIs that you can use to to get the area under the curve. But once you have that, that tells you uh, a lot about the accuracy of your model you want to get a high area under the curve Um, also with regression you have you have the sigmoid function and so the sigmoid function also can be altered uh, in terms of its steepness of the curve so there's an inflection point usually at 0.5 and so the curve can be steep or it can be gradual uh, and and there might be cases where you want the sigmoid to be more gradual, uh, to get better generalization. Uh, it can be shifted right, or it can be shifted left. Um, so, classifiers are really equations, and you have to think about what the equations are doing. It's kind of like algebra. If you remember these algebraic equations, and then uh, you would graph it, and then from the visualization you could kind of understand what the data was saying. You know, like for example, a parabola. Uh, if you're a negative x or a positive x, didn't matter, you're gonna have a positive y. And so, if you were looking at uh, acceleration, deceleration, you would say the acceleration was zero at the inflection point, and that that, w- that would be one root. So it'd be what a second-order polynomial. Uh, whereas if you had kind of like a, a tangent curve, maybe that'd be a third-order polynomial. You'd have three roots or three, two inflection points. And uh, when you deal with splines, the, it's always uh, uh, one order less in terms of your your knots or your uh, spline points and uh, and so you can get higher-order splines. Uh, and that's kind of what you're doing a lot with these classifiers is you're just trying to figure out what that classifier, especially when you're dealing with trend, what that classifier should do, what its behavior should do, what are its polynomial features, I guess is what you would say. Um, and so that's kind of what your your aim is, is to describe a, a function that uh, accurately uh, uh, moves through the data without overfitting or underfitting. And, and that's what the area under the curve is going to give you. It's going to give you an indication of whether overfitting or underfitting is occurring. And I think they like to throw that out a lot because they don't want to really talk about area under the curve or ROC or you know the confusion matrix. But you want to stick with the bread and butter uh, metrics uh, which is the confusion matrix for determining accuracy well uh, so PySpark I was actually kind of surprised I went and did a search in Idaho how many PySpark programming jobs there were, and not too many went and looked at uh, uh, Lehigh, Utah which is uh, you know, so-called slopes and there was a few jobs there and um, not sure why there wasn't more PySpark. Um, that's your Python interface to the Spark server. So, you know, you, you're, you're, uh, your cluster, okay, just talking about architecture, you have nodes. And a node represents uh, a, a computer, it has RAM and, uh, and uh, CPU and a hard drive. So, that's a node. And uh, there are mul- multiple nodes in the cluster, and you have a configurator. Uh, that talks to these nodes. That's allocating resource and uh, assigning tasks. And the node has different tasks, and those are threads. So you've got a CPU with multiple threads. Threads called activities or some task. And uh, and then you have a driver that interfaces with the uh, configuration manager, and that driver is uh, written in Scala, Python, Java, probably C, JavaScript, blah, 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 right? There are different languages that that driver can interface through APIs to uh, the manager. And that's kind of the uh, Spark architecture. It runs on Apache and... Uh, because it's capable of handling large amounts of data, you can take your CSV files, and you can uh, you can create uh, you can create uh, your Spark tables from the CSV files, or you can uh, uh, you can uh, describe the columns and create an empty uh, Spark table, and then populate it through RESTful APIs. Now, one of the things that's interesting is when you read in a CSV file, you don't necessarily get the uh, data types. So you have, to, uh, you have to infer them. So there's a flag that does infer. And but when they come in, all the columns come in a string. So it doesn't automatically infer the uh, data types. Which is kind of annoying. I think they should have that as a default that it infers the data type, but uh, they don't. So you have to set the inferred uh, type to uh, true, and then uh, you also need to make sure that the nulls are ha- the NAs are handled with uh, the nulls are handled with NAs. The missing values are handled with NA. Uh, and uh, otherwise, if there's any NAs in the uh, data, it will automatically infer that column, any rows in that column to be NA, it will infer that column to be a string so there's not a lot of smarts to the CSV conversion you're going to have to do a lot of checking. You can you can uh, preview the schema on the table that's coming in, in the spark table. Uh, you can uh, uh, you can uh, look at the data types using D types, and then you just got to keep working with the data and manipulating it until you get the columns in the right data type format that you want in your pyspark. Now, one thing I didn't see yet in PySpark is the ability to set indexes. And It may not use indexes because of the architecture. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of the data is partitioned. It's loaded into tables, and uh, much the way that we would deal with a SQL, you can do group bys, joins, left joins, right joins. Uh, they have different functions like uh, count average so forth and uh, you know it, it it does everything that you would need in a microservice. so I could see uh, where you're doing some analytics that you're using uh, RESTful function calls or RESTful API calls pass over a token okay, authenticate get the token Make the RESTful call, and uh, and you're returning back data from the uh, from the Spark server, and uh, that could probably be done in C sharp. That, that's the way I would do it if I was writing the the RESTful side. I would do it in C sharp and uh, set up my class structures and and then do my do my binding that way. And then return it uh, into the uh, into the application. Um, so there's a lot of uh, functionality that can be appreciated by PySpark. Uh, definitely, can consume all your data, no matter what size of company you are. And uh, you know, you just set up if you have the money for the hardware, then you just set up your hardware and. You have your DevOps that gets your configurations for your cluster uh, fast. And and then uh, you uh, utilize the power of the, kind of like the hive, I guess. Well, and I could really see uh, where PySpark would be very powerful for IoT where you're just collecting lots and lots of data from devices, maybe even a data lake, and then you're wanting to do some analytics on, on uh, that data that's being collected. And, uh, and then you're going to want to uh, look at response times and, and uh, you know, you can do filtering, you can do filtering on the, the data set, you can do joins, um, and, and you can do chaining. So it, uh, you can do one one thing into another into another. <clears throat> so it does make for really compact programming. You can leverage those high-level language features of Python and, uh, and get some amazing results. So I really think that PySpark could be the future... Of data storage for almost all companies, I could see how PySpark can do that because uh, you know you're not on a proprietary system. I know there's probably some aspects of licensing which I don't know, but uh, uh, you could load it, load the PySpark on to your servers, and then you could migrate your data over and then do everything through uh, microservices. So uh, the real power then of microservices is the ability to access your data uh, from many, many different dimensions.